Throughout the centuries of church history, sometimes it has been noted that when we come to the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, we see the gospel. We experience, touch, taste, feel the gospel, and when we come to God's Word, we hear the gospel. So having remembered and been renewed in the gospel through the sacrament of baptism, now we come to remember and be renewed in the gospel as we hear God's Word preached this morning. So please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, we're going to look at verses uh, 25, 6, and 7. If you use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 978. I'm going to put the text on the screen, but I ask you to please turn there in your Bible, either in print or on your phone, because we are going to refer not to just to these verses, but to the verses that we looked at last week, because they all hang together. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Let's stand this morning. And as we did last week, let's read God's Word together this morning. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, what we want this morning can only come from you. We want to hear you. We want to experience your truth. We want to be convicted of our sin where it exists. We want to hear the gospel. We want to experience it. We want to trust it so that we might live for you this week. And so, since it can only come from you, we ask you to do that for your glory and our good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is your first week with us. You might know that uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians for a few months now. And if you've ever looked at this book before, you might know that it's really divided up into two sections. Chapters one through three are about the good news, and chapters four through six are about how we respond to that good news. And chapters one through three, many have said, are one of the most succinct and amazing and profound statements of God's grace for sinners like me and you that ever has been or will be. We've seen that God chooses us. We've seen that God regenerates us. We've seen that God redeems us, adopts us, forgives us, even though we are born rebels, even though we don't want Him and go our own way. God does all of that and more. He gives us a hope and a future and places us in a home, a church, His church, with others who have experienced the same thing. And I have prayed for myself and for all of you as we go through this book that you would not only intellectually know more about grace, but dare I say that you would even emotionally connect with it in a new or fresh way, that you might be renewed in the gospel. And we often turn to stories outside of Scripture to help us understand grace, don't we? Little pictures from movies or literature or our own lives that can be like, ah, that's it, that's a handhold, that's something I can understand, that's something about grace I can get my hands around. And one of the ones we often turn to is Les Mis. 
It was a book by Victor Hugo, and maybe you've not read the book. Most know it as a musical and then as a movie, and less of us perhaps as a book. I first saw the musical when I was in college, and I have to say I was captivated by it. It was the first musical I had ever seen, and being a college-age male, I was not that excited to go to a musical, but I was on a mission trip to New York City. It was on the agenda. The tickets were bought. Fine, I'll go. And I couldn't get over it for weeks. I couldn't get over it because of the transformation of the main character, Jean Valjean. It's set in France about 200 years back. And maybe you know Jean Valjean more as prisoner number 24601. I see some of you mouthing the numbers because you know the song. He had a prison number because he had served 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving family. He did not come out of prison a happy man. He did not come out a kind and gentle man. He was angry, he was mad, and a priest takes him in, gives him food and shelter because as a prisoner, he can't find work. And how does he repay the priest? Do you know? He steals. He steals the priest's silver candlesticks. Thank you very much for your kindness. Now I will take from you your most valuable possession. He runs. He's caught. They bring the priest in to testify against him. And the priest says, huh, it was a gift. And as a matter of fact, Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601, you forgot part of it. Here's two more silver candlesticks. A beautiful, moving picture of grace. Not only did the priest not prosecute, he gave above and beyond to a man who had stolen from him. A beautiful picture of my salvation, of our salvation. But I heard recently a quote from the book in a sermon I was listening to that I hadn't heard before that gets at what was Jean Valjean's reaction to this grace that the priest showed him. Do you know? What was his reaction? We often talk about our reaction to grace. When God gives us grace, what's our reaction? And we talk about a reaction of worship. We talk about a reaction of gratitude. Jean Valjean, I'm going to put his reaction up on the screen because unless you have actually gone through the reaction that Jean had, I'm not sure you've wrestled with grace says this, Valjean didn't know if he had been touched or humiliated. In opposition to this celestial kindness, he summoned up his pride. The priest's pardon was the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. He felt his hardness of heart would be complete if he could just resist this kindness. That's not a reaction of worship. That's not a reaction of gratitude. That's not a soft heart. It's a hard heart. He considers this grace an attack. He considers it humiliation. That's his reaction. Why? Well, next slide. That if he yielded to it, he would have to renounce the hatred and mistreatment of others that had filled his soul, in which he had found so much satisfaction. In the face of this assault, he knew he had to conquer or be conquered, and that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, 
had begun. Valjean instantly knew something about grace. He knew that this was a free gift, but he knew it came with a demand. A demand that if he accepted this grace, his life must be different. In a sense, he doesn't use this word, but he knows it demands repentance. He saw it right away. He saw that it demanded something of him. And I'm telling you this because now that we're in this second section of Ephesians, chapters four through six, we're talking about our response to grace. And not many of us would say it this way, but perhaps you think of chapters one through three as the good news, and chapters four through six about our response as the bad news. The good news, I'm saved by grace. The bad news is here's all these commands that I now have to obey and follow. And I want to correct that this morning if your heart goes that direction. It's not that chapters four through six are bad news, they're also good news. A life of repentance and obedience is good news. Because not only is grace pardoning and forgiving, hear this clearly, grace is also transforming and enabling in a good way. It enables us to obey. The demands of grace, Grace meets us there and provides what it demands. And so everything we look at in chapters four through six, because of what we saw last week, that we have already, if you're a Christian, put off the old self, and you have already put on the new, now everything else Paul says is in light of that. It's based on that. It grows out of that. So today, and actually, Next week, the week after, as we move through this paragraph, which we just started this morning, we're going to have a lab. Each command that Paul gives us, we're going to put it in a laboratory and apply what we saw in the paragraph last week. The paragraph last week was, we've put off the old, we've put on the new. How does that actually work out in these commands that Paul gives? It's not an accident that these two paragraphs are next to each other. So we have to take what he said last week, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it, and apply it. We're going to look at it two ways this week. First, we're going to say, tell the truth. And second, we're going to say, get angry. So first, tell the truth. And he gives us two reasons if you look at verse 25 to tell the truth. We're going to look at them both. The first is to tell the truth because you have put away falsehood. And I say have because when he says put away, it's the same verb in Greek that we looked at last week. And it's in the same tense as the verb we looked at last week. So last week in verse 22, Paul said put off the old self. Not as a command, but as a reality that's already happened to every Christian in the past when you learned Christ. You have put off the old. And now he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, Not only have you put off the old self, you've put off all of its life and practices that go with it. Last week we saw that this means obedience is not an impossible mountain to climb. It means chapters four through six are not bad news because you can't obey, you can't live up. Chapters four through six, because you have put off the old and have put on the new, are good news. And you have received this by faith. There's nothing here that says you earned your new self. When you trusted the Lord by faith, 
he forgave you and justified you, and he made you new by grace. When Paul tells us to tell the truth, I want you to see he doesn't ground it in the fact that it's the right thing to do, although we know from other places in Scripture and intuitively that it is the right thing to do. He doesn't ground it in that. He doesn't ground it in the fact that if you don't, there will be consequences. It will hurt others. He grounds it in the reality of your new self in Christ. He's saying, like we said last week, be consistent with who you are. Don't be inconsistent with who you are in Christ. Be consistent. Now, is this point about truth-telling something you really need? Because you're probably a pretty honest person. I could take the people in here and I can go around our city or our country or the world and I can find worse liars than you. (laughs) We can talk about movies where the character is worse than you, lies more than me. But please don't check out on me because you think I'm an honest person. I don't need this because when we step back and look at ourselves, dishonesty and lying is more rooted and present than we might think. There's a psychology professor at Duke named Dan O'Reilly who wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And he had a theory he wanted to test. If it is less likely someone will be caught in a lie, are they more likely to lie? And if the reward for getting away with the lie is greater, will they be more likely to lie? In other words, is our decision to lie simply a risk and reward analysis? So he set up a controlled experiment. He brought students into a classroom, had them sit at a desk, gave them math problems, and said, for every right answer, you get X amount of money. And he made it possible to cheat. And in some of the experiments, the students got paid more than other experiments to test whether or not you're more likely to cheat if the reward is greater. And in other experiments, they tested if they were more likely to cheat if it was less likely to get caught. If it was easier to cheat, would they be more likely? And surprisingly, he found people cheated at the same rate. They cheated a lot. (laughs) But they cheated about the same rate whether or not it was more likely to be caught or more likely to get rich off of it. And what he learned is it has something to do with how they saw themselves. They didn't want to be a dishonest person. They wanted to just get a little bit. They had a self-conception that said, I can cheat a little bit and be okay. I can lie a little and still think of myself as honest because probably somebody's cheating more than me or I could have done worse. And I had to ask, is that me? Is that you? Are you more likely to, we could say lie, let's just say bend the truth. Are you more likely to bend the truth if you think it's a small thing? And will you be bothered by it? Will it cause you a pang of conscience? When someone says, we missed you at the get together last night, which you didn't feel like going to, and you say, oh, I was just so busy. No, you weren't. You were streaming Netflix. You weren't busy. You were at home. Or what about those times when we go to strengthen our argument? We go to strengthen our argument. And so 
The people we disagree with, the group we disagree with, they're not present, and so we assume their intent. They might say their intent, these people we disagree with, is to be helpful, but we know, we know their real intent is to divide, to destroy, to harm our children. If you listen to the discourse around us, both sides do it all the time. Both sides know the other has evil intent. How do we know that? How do you know? Friends, the Bible calls that slander. When we pass off something as true that we don't know to be true, we break this command. We don't tell the truth. Just to strengthen our argument. So I think if you step back, deception might be more part of your life than you realize. So the question is, how do you stop? If this is something you do, how do you stop? And like we said, there's plenty of moralistic ways to stop lying. You can appeal to fear. God will get me. God will punish me. People will get me. People will punish me. I will get caught. There will be consequences. You can appeal to pride. Don't lie because I'm not one of those people that do that. I'm one of those good people. I'm not one of those dishonest people. You can appeal to fear, to pride. You can appeal even to more altruistic ways like it will hurt others, it will hurt myself. And those might work for a while, but do they change you? Do they help you obey by faith? Because the scripture is clear, without faith it's impossible to please God. So how do you combine faith with your fight to tell the truth? That's where I think Paul gives us a better way, a way that's really transformative. And for the next few moments, everything I say is going to be a mixture of Bob Flayhart's Gospel Waltz, Repent, Believe, Fight, that we mention around here a lot, and some other stuff from Tim Keller. So I'm going to take those two great preachers, combine them, and here's what you get. So if we're going to turn from lying with faith, we first have to repent. That's the first of the three steps. To repent, if you don't know, is to turn from something and turn to something. We forget that last part. Sometimes we just think repentance is turning away. But in the process of turning away from lying, what are you turning to? Are you going to turn to pride, to fear, to self-effort? Or are you going to turn to God? Are you going to turn to grace? And more than turning from lying... If you really want to change and obey by faith, then you have to turn from the reason that you lie. Why did you lie in that moment? Why did you lie? For some of us, we bend the truth to keep the approval of someone else. Hey, did you get that project finished? Or did you get that email sent? You want to keep their approval. You haven't sent it. You say yes, and then you run to go finish it before they can find out when it was done. They just know it was done. You had to save face. You had to keep their approval. Maybe you lie for convenience sake. Maybe you lie for control's sake. Maybe you lie because it's going to help you get more stuff or something else. The ultimate thing to repent from is the reason that you lie. And to see that when you break the ninth commandment, which is the one about lying, to break that, you have to also break the first commandment, Martin Luther said. The first commandment is have no other gods before me. Because when you lie, there's something you think you think you have to have. And you have to have that more than God. And so to break the ninth, you have to break the first. You have to turn from that also. So the turning from, but the believe step, the second step, is the turning to something. 
If you're lying to keep or to gain someone's approval, what's the truth you need to turn to? You need to turn to the fact that Jesus approves of you. And he so longs to approve of you that he shed his own blood to cover your sin, that he's united with you so that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. And when he looks at Christ, he sees you. And when your heart doesn't just know that but worships God for it, then you begin to find power over the sin of lying. That's what we do when we, want, when we lie to keep control. We have to turn to a God who loves us and is in charge and is in control, and we can trust Him when we feel out of control. Whatever the lie is, turn to a specific gospel truth. Maybe you just need to turn to the fact that you can tell the truth because you are a new person in Christ. That's not to your credit, that's to God's credit. Some of you feel stuck in a lie. How are you ever going to get out of it? Because you have put on the new self. God has given that to you. And then, repent, believe, third step is to fight. You fight. And that's not just self-will. That's trusting. The fight step is not that different in some sense than the belief step. Because to fight, you need to exercise your faith. When you're tempted to lie in that moment to keep or gain someone's approval, that's when you have to believe, God approves of me. I don't need their approval. I can be honest. And then you tell the truth. And you see how now that combines faith. You obey by faith and trusting God's approval or trusting in God's good control of things or trusting that God will provide so that you tell the truth. You might be thinking, that's not in these verses, Brian. <laughs> well, if you go back to verse 23 that we looked at last week, we said there's one present tense verb in that paragraph, and it is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And I think that certainly to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, would it not involve trusting these truths? Would it not involve remembering and being renewed in the fact that you are a new person? And then if you're struggling to tell the truth, to have your mind renewed that God does approve of you, that God is in control, that whatever the reason you're lying comes from, that he's there to meet it, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you trust the truth and not the lie. That's the first reason he gives us not to lie, because we have already put away falsehood. The second reason is because we're members one of another. That's not very American, Paul. We prefer individualism. We prefer to think we're an island. We prefer to think my individual behavior is about me and it affects me. But Paul says, your lying or truth-telling has to do with the fact that in Christ, you are members not just of Him, you're not just united to Christ, but you're united to each other. That's what he said back in verse 16 of this chapter. The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And you might think, I became a Christian to have a relationship with God. I'm not sure about the rest of you. God says you have to take one with the other. You want a relationship with me, you're going to have a relationship with these people that I love. And my love for them makes no less sense than my love for you. And you think, God, you can't love them. That doesn't make sense. Have you seen them? And he says, yes. Have you seen yourself? I love you. I love them. You're members one of another in the worldwide body of Christ and therefore also in a local church. You're members one of another. And your faith that works, our lack of faith that works itself out in lying or truth-telling 
affects each other. When you don't tell the truth to each other, when you slander someone inside the church or outside the church to each other, you don't just hurt the person you slander, you hurt the person who hurt it. When you lie, you don't just hurt yourself or them, you hurt the person you lie to. You see, there's a reason Paul's going to list out the sins he lists out here at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. He's going to talk about lying. He's going to talk about stealing. We'll see. He's going to talk about unkind words, which we'll see. He's going to talk about lack of forgiveness. Paul's not just like, let me just now name some sins. Let me just name some things someone might need to grow in. If you step back and look at it, they fit with his main theme in Ephesians, that grace unites. All the sins he's going to list out this week and in the weeks to come that we'll look at, they're particular kinds of sins that tear at a church's unity. If a church has people that aren't telling the truth, it tears at that church's unity. If a church has people that are angry, as we'll talk about in a moment, it tears at that church's unity. If a, per, if, our, if a church has people that are engaged in stealing, that are engaged in um, lack of forgiveness, do those things not tear at our unity? There's a reason he's listing these things out, because we are members one of another. There's a vertical Godward reason to obey, but there's also a horizontal people reason to obey. We need each other to trust the gospel, to tell the truth, to protect our unity. So that's the first point. You've already put off the old self, including lying, so tell the truth by the renewing of your mind, repenting, believing, and fighting, trusting what God has said. That's the first lab to apply what we saw last week. The second lab is this, get angry. And you might think that's a typo. Brian should have said, don't get angry. The second point should be, don't get angry. But the second point is, get angry because be angry. That's what Paul says. And you might be thinking, let's just stop reading there because I can nail that one. <laughs> Three times this morning on the way to church, thank you, Paul, I obeyed. But that's not where he stops. Be angry and do not sin. Now you might be thinking, Paul has no idea what he's talking about. Because those two things cannot exist. Anger and not sinning. And you could think that because of your experience. Many of us have an authority figure in our backgrounds that our predominant memory and feeling of them is their anger. What do you think of when you hear, he's angry, she's angry? What memory comes to your mind? Or even what physical reaction because when you're angry or you see someone angry, you have a physical, bodily reaction to that. You have a surge of adrenaline. Your knees get shaky. Because we think of the broken examples of anger. We think of the broken feelings that come from and give rise to anger. We think of those broken actions like yelling and throwing and hitting and cussing. We think of those kinds of things. Some of us listening today your life is seemingly off the rails because of someone else's anger in your background. So our experience with our anger and other anger, other people's anger, it's usually not pretty, but it can't be the whole story because we know in Scripture God gets angry and we know God doesn't sin. We know in Scripture Jesus got angry. At least three times in the Gospels it describes Jesus' anger. He got angry at death when he stood before his friend's tomb. He got angry at the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, corruption in the temple. 
He got angry when people didn't want the hurting to be healed. So to understand anger, how can you be angry and not sin? You have to go back and understand the essence of anger. And here for the next little bit, I'm going to quote a lot from a book called Good and Angry by David Paulison. David says, the essence of anger is this, I'm against that. That's it. That's the essence of anger. I'm against that. That's the source and root of our anger, good or bad. He unpacks it a little bit more, and he says, the underlying element of anger is simply active displeasure towards something important enough to care about. Active displeasure towards something important enough to care about. In other words, it's the way you react when you think something important is not the way it's supposed to be. Isn't that true? Doesn't all your anger come from the fact that you encounter something in life that you think matters and it's not the way it's supposed to be? And actually, to be angry is the way you're designed. Because you're designed, we even learned last week in Ephesians, you're designed in God's likeness. If you want to understand the world and people and yourself, then get this, you are made in God's image. You're made in God's likeness. That doesn't mean that you're like God in every way, but when God has emotions, guess how he made us? Yes, it's true, to have emotions. God has rationality. How did he make you? He made you also to have a rational side. God is creative. He made us to be creative. God has a will and a purpose, and he made us the same way. And he made us in righteousness and holiness. But when we sinned, that likeness, that mirror shattered. We're still in his likeness, but we corrupted every single way that we're in his likeness. We corrupted our intellect, our emotions, our rationality, our will, our creativity. All these things are broken. So therefore, our anger is messed up. The triggers that make you angry are messed up because you think something's important that's probably really not. Your expressions of anger are messed up. Sometimes we don't get angry at things we should. And sometimes anger can feel like a prison. I read this week same book, actually, that apparently I didn't know this. A fire started in a coal mine in Pennsylvania in 1960-something. It's still burning. They can't put it out. Does that not describe some of your anger? You've been angry for years. You've been angry for decades, and you don't know how to put it out. How can we be free? And I would suggest the way to be free is the same way as we stop lying, by the renewal of your mind. To be free of your anger, first you have to admit you have a problem. One of my all-time favorite chapters in any book is chapter two, this book, Good and Angry. The title of the chapter is, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? You can't see it, but there's the title right here. Yes. <laughs> Turn the page. Questions for discussion. That's it. That's the whole chapter. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Yes. How do you respond to this chapter? Go back and reread it a couple of times. <laughs> Think hard about what it says. How do you react? Etc. Etc. Yes, we have a serious problem with anger. And you say, no, my dad had a serious problem with anger. He yelled, cussed, threw. I don't do any of that. Sometimes anger looks like that. Sometimes anger looks like withdrawing. Sometimes anger looks like being quiet and shutting down. 
Sometimes that's how we punish those people that we're angry at. So anger can look like a lot of things. Sometimes we say, I'm not angry, I'm just tired. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry, I'm just irritated. We'll say anything to avoid saying we're angry. But really, all those things, you know what they are? They're anger. They're anger. So once you admit it, you have to ask what triggers it. Anger is an incredibly instructive emotion. Because if anger is active displeasure towards something that's not the way it's supposed to be, something you think is important, what triggers your anger? That will show you what you think is important, and it might show you whether or not that thing is worth being angry about. Some things you're angry about are. Some things you're angry about aren't. It's an incredibly instructive emotion that we feel. Take parenting. I can confess to you, I've confessed to my kids far too often, my parenting and my anger go together in all the wrong ways. So often when you're angry as a parent, is it because of something legit in your kid's life that's worth being angry about, something important, or is it because parenting at times can be inconvenient? And we get angry when it's inconvenient. Speaking of triggers for anger, back in 2016, there was a fair amount of anger right here in our city. 2016 is the year, you might know this story, you might not, It was the year that a homeless woman, this is a hard story to tell, was thrown off a bridge downtown. She broke her back and was paralyzed. The man who threw her off the bridge then held her captive under the bridge and tortured her for days until she was found. That was the year there was a fair amount of anger in our city. I didn't hear any anger about that. You know what the anger was about? Bike lanes bike lanes. People were fired up about the bike lanes. Motorists were fired up that their drive was slower. Cyclists were fired up that people were driving in their bike lanes. There was letters to the editor. There were meetings. There was comments online. There was social media posts. There was anger about bike lanes. Now, good traffic management for a city is important. If you're involved in that work, bless you. We need you. But why was there no anger? over the first story, but there was anger about bike lanes. Because I think what we care about is getting to where we go on time. What we care about can be a warped sense of justice and these other things. What gets you angry? What gets you angry and does it matter? And once you admit it, once you identify the trigger, now renew your mind. If you're angry about something that you want control of that you don't have control of, then repent of that. Don't just repent of the anger. Repent of the reason for it. And then believe. Believe that God is good and He's in charge, that He has this thing in His hand. And then when you start to get angry, fight. Don't just fight with self-will, but fight with faith, trusting God is good and He is in control. If you get angry because you're inconvenienced, repent of that. Believe that God is in charge and loves you and that maybe in your inconvenience there's a chance to love him and to love others and then to fight when you get angry. Trust those things. And that's when we see our likeness of God begin to get restored. That mirror begins to get put back together and we reflect him in ways that we should. That's what Paul's talking about at the end of the last paragraph. Now he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, sometimes the issues are just too big. Sometimes your anger has been boiling like that coal mine for years, and it's going to take days, weeks, months to work on this and to process it. Why does he say that? 
Because as far as it is possible, do not let the sun go down on your anger, of course. But why? Because anger is so corrosive and destructive. It leads to bad health physically. Plenty of research on that. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to broken churches. It is destructive. So therefore, don't let the sun, please, go down on your anger. If you're angry, please admit it. If you've covered it up with other things, call it what it is. And then get talking about it. Get praying about it. Talking about it with your friends, with your small group. If you don't have one, we're launching new village groups here in the next few weeks. Get talking about your anger. Get praying about it. Don't let the sun go down on it because it is so destructive. And now just like to tell the truth was a corporate command, so is this one. Certainly individual, but it's also to a church. It's corporate. Don't be angry with one another. Don't sin in your anger because you're members one of another. That's what he means when he says don't give an opportunity to the devil. Don't let it get in because it's destructive. Are you mad at someone here at Village 7? Some of you are because you've told me. (laughs) You don't even hide it sometimes. (laughs) Then please, for your sake and for the sake of the church, if you need to go and be reconciled to someone, do that. If you need help with that, we can help you. If you need to just repent privately, do that. But do not let anger get a foothold. Do not give an opportunity to the devil because we have an opportunity to continue to build a kind of church culture that will bless us, and as we're blessed, it will bless the world. That will be attractive to outsiders, that will help us in our mission. Will not people be attracted to a community that tells the truth? Will not people be attracted to a community that gets angry about the right things? Yes, of course. So, Village 7, let's be angry people. Let's be angry people. Let's be angry for the right reasons and in the right ways, in servant-like, constructive, helpful ways over things that really matter. Let's lay down anger that doesn't matter, that destroys and corrupts. Get to the root of it, renewing your mind, trusting the truth where your anger has led you to a lie. So we've seen this morning the good news of the gospel is not just that we can be free of lying and anger, but that we're free because we're putting on and have put on the new self. Jean Valjean saw that grace demanded something. The good news is grace also provides what it demands. And having put on that new self and in the renewal of your mind, obedience and following Christ as an individual and as a church is possible as we renew our minds. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. I need you to trust these things, to trust that your salvation is so good that those reasons that I'm led to lie are not worth it. I need your truth to appear so good and so wonderful that I worship you. So the reasons I get angry are evident and not worth it. Father, I pray that you would do that for all of us. I pray that you would do that for us as a church, that you would create that kind of culture that flows from your grace to us, your pardoning and forgiving grace, and your transforming and enabling grace as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.